0: If you love chilling mysteries, unsolved cases, and a touch of mom-style humor, Moms and Mysteries is the podcast you've been searching for. Hey guys, I'm Mandy. And I'm Melissa. Join us every Tuesday for Moms and Mysteries, your gateway to gripping, well-researched true
1: crime stories. Each week, we deep dive into a variety of mind-boggling cases as we shed light on everything from heists to whodunits. We're your go-to podcast for mysteries with a motherly touch. Subscribe now to Moms and Mysteries wherever you get your podcast
0: you've tuned in to columbia calling your first stop for everything you want to know about Colombia. how and where to invest where to visit from the pacific to the caribbean the andes mountains to the amazon jungle Colombia has a slice of everything Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia.
1: Hello and welcome to Colombia Calling. I'm Emily Hart and today I'll be chatting to Colombian political scientist Maria Emma Wills-Obregon. We'll be talking about collective memory, polarization and conflict resolution, and how a country can weave itself back together together after decades of war. Maria Emma has had a long and distinguished career combining academic research and public office, serving as advisor to the National Centre for Historical Memory, as well as being a member of the Historical Commission on the Conflict and Its Victims, agreed between the National Government and the FARC guerrilla. She is also lecturer at the University of the Andes. Maria Emma's newest book, Memorias para la Paz or Memorias para la Guerra, is a reflection on the importance of a plural narrative of the events that constitute our history. So is history always written by the victors? Who is writing Columbia's collective memory? And why does it matter so much? All that coming up, but first, your top news stories for the week of January 30th, 2023.
0: The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over, if you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's columbiacalling.co or the plan my trip form on the bnb columbia tours website that's bnbcolumbia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again.
1: Record numbers of social leaders were murdered in 2022, according to Columbia's ombudsman, with 216 killed. It's the highest figure since 2016 and a rise of 49% on the year before. Leaders of local action committees, grassroots community groups known as HAC, are the most vulnerable group, with 63 leaders murdered in 2022. Nariño and Cauca are the most affected departments, followed by Antioquia and Putumayo. Think tank Indipaz has already counted six social leaders murdered this year, and the UN has called on Colombia to impose rule of law and establish state presence in its rural territories. Numerous women have made allegations of sexual harassment by members of Colombian Congress, a potential ambassador to the United Arab Emirates and even Secretary of the Presidency, Mauricio Liscano, the latter revealed by El País this week. Liscano denies the allegations. Some are calling it Colombia's Me Too moment, Allegations are all currently anonymous for fear of reprisals from some of the country's most powerful men. The country's president, Gustavo Petro, announced an internal investigation into sexual harassment and violence in Congress. It is to be led by Maria Jose Pizarro, who has now presented a new protocol for women in Congress to make complaints about abuse and receive immediate psychological and legal support, even anonymously. Meanwhile, the president has announced that he will take control of regulating energy tariffs, having announced that he suspects regulatory commissions have defined tariffs in favour of companies and not users. These powers had been delegated to regulatory commissions in the 90s, though the change back is allowed for by the constitution. Inflation has hit utilities' prices particularly hard – and last year's agreements with energy companies failed to meaningfully lower tariffs for Colombian service users who are already suffering a cost-of-living crisis. The announcement has, however, been met with some controversy, both from companies, one of whom has mounted a legal challenge, and from analysts, on grounds of market effects and concentration of political power. And the central bank has raised interest rates from 12 to 12.75%, a measure designed to curb inflation. It marks the 12th consecutive interest rate hike, but is a slightly smaller rise than the previous, signalling expectations that inflation may start to ease. More controversy last week, as Irene Vélez, Minister of Mines and Energy, presented a report on the country's gas resources. The report was controversial in both content and process, claiming that the resources could last until the year 2037, supposedly giving ample time for the transition from hydrocarbons to clean energies. Different sectors have come out against those estimates, calling them overly optimistic or even misleading. Velez's own deputy minister even disputed the report, saying her signature had been used without her consent. She then resigned. In the U.S., Dairo Antonio Usuga David, also known as Otoniel, has pled guilty to running a criminal enterprise as well as drug distribution. Otoniel was leader of the Clan del Golfo, also known as the AGC, one of the country's most powerful armed groups. He was arrested by Colombian armed forces in October 2021 and now faces a mandatory prison term of 20 years in the U.S., The Brooklyn federal prosecutor announced that the plea marked the end of the reign of the most violent and significant Colombian narcotics trafficker since Pablo Escobar. Nonetheless, more cocaine was seized in Colombia in 2022 than any year since measurement began in 2010, according to the Ministry of Defence. 671 tonnes were seized, one and a half tonnes more than in 2021. Seizure of coca base also increased by 17% last year. Prosecutions relating to the national strike Paro Nacional protests have begun, with Andrés Escobar and 16 others, a combination of police and civilians, under prosecution for firing at demonstrators in Valle del Cauca. Escobar himself was caught on camera patrolling protests with a gun during the Paro Nacional in May 2021, images which went viral on social media. Meanwhile, two former riot police, ESMAD, agents have been charged with the murder of a protester during the same protests in Bogotá. Daniel Alejandro Zapata was killed by the impact of a grenade which was fired directly at him against protocol. Following the violence against the national protests in 2020 and 2021, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights made a number of recommendations to Colombia to guarantee the right to protest – a review this week found that substantial progress had only been made in three of 28 recommended actions. There was partial compliance with 14 and no compliance at all with 11. Meanwhile, the President has been at the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States Summit in Argentina, speaking about realising Latin American unity through concrete projects, conservation of the Amazon, migration and and inclusion of Venezuela into the inter-American rights system. He also proposed an inter-American health system to prevent monopolization of health services. More of your top stories next week. But for now, let's get into today's interview. So, Maria Emma, welcome on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
2: Emily, it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: You've had an amazing and varied career sort of truly intersectional a lot of it's been focused on the making of memory in post conflict colombia collective narrative community testimony grief and healing how important is that in colombia and why well
2: i think it's very important for most countries but in colombia particularly because we're transition trying trying to transition from war to peace, from armed conflict Mm. to a society that um, faces conflicts Mm. in other ways different from violence. So we do need memory in order to understand what happened, who did what to whom, um, and in order also to, to... Um, have a moral standing on certain things that happen in the country that should not ever happen again.
1: And memory is such an interesting idea, particularly in terms of national memory, because, you know, some people will call it history Mm -hmm. and they say that history is written by the victors. But in the civil conflict in Colombia, there is no clear victor. So, how does Colombia fit into that paradigm?
2: Through one of the, the specificities memory? of the armed conflict in Colombia is that it was is, is trying and was resolved through negotiations. Um, the state mm. was not able to um, sweep the guerrillas, and the guerrillas did not win over the state. So. For a long time, very, very long time, it was like a very um, atrocious, atrocious equilibrium between forces because the forces um, used armed repertories that were more and more degraded by the cycle of violence, the long cycle of violence. So, yes. Generally, they say that the victors do the memory and impose the memory on societies. But what is so interesting about memory is that even in cases where you have a victor or a totalitarian state, there are other memories that keep on going on through different circuits, the family, the family Mm. histories, say dissident voices that are not heard by the victorious voice. Um, Why are the dissident or the non-victorious voices so important? Because they tend to point at the atrocious facts committed by the victors. And this is why we need also the dissident voices, because they bring about a different story not of heroes and villains you know s- <laughs> history for many many decades was about heroes patriotism you know the victorious side mm. um, they bring another story they bring the story of of how uh, violent conflicts can show the worst and the best but in most cases the worst of all mm-hmm. sides
1: mm. So there's a distinction, you know, that phrase, history is written by the victors, history's kind of got a capital Mm -hmm. H. It's talking about, you know, big tomes that you would find in a library. And a lot of your work has been different forms of memory creation, so artistic forms and, you know, really listening to to people, like you say, victims or regional, regional memories. So what have been the key institutions for for Colombia, in terms of memory creation? Because you've worked with so many of them.
2: Let me go back a bit, because you said something that is very important for memory studies. I think that memory mm. studies have shown that um, the archives with which historians work, which were, at a certain point, um, written documents, state official documents, were not enough to have a a complex, integral view of what had happened. So what has happened really is that oral history has come into the field of historians. And now, now not only oral history is part of the archival um, sources that historians look up at, uh, but also... Other languages, artistic languages, not only from professional artists, but also from community artists and and uh, if if you want local local people who also have a tale in the history of nations. So it's been very interesting because it's been widening to let other mm. voices come into what historians. Call archives and sources for historians to do their work. So um, that's what I've been doing, mm, so trying important. to 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 um, make history more inclusive and more complex, mm. um, and use different languages to communicate communicate that history. So now to the <laughs> to the question about. <laughs> Institutions in Colombia. In Colombia, in the um, at the turn of the twenty first century, we had talks between the Uribe government and the paramilitary forces. The paramilitary forces are right wing armed organizations, and um, during that time, the government said, "Okay, we are going to negotiate." It wasn't really a negotiation because. Um, they were more the allies, the allies of certain mm. currents, armed currents within the state. I'm not saying the whole state was paramilitary, but it was not a negotiation between enemies. It was more a demobilization process. The demobilization process was done within a framework, a legal framework called Law 975 de justicia and justice mm. and peace. And that law was very controversial and many NGOs and human rights groups and victims, organized victims said, you know, that law is too soft on the paramilitaries. So what happened is right. that the court, the constitutional court, had to um, impose impose a new legal Normative framework where the paramilitaries could achieve the ben- benefits of the law only and only if they told the whole truth. The whole truth was very important for the victims. The victims not only wanted to know who pulled the trigger or who did the to- torture, they wanted to know who gave the orders, who were behind as strategies, mm. controlling the, the whole organizations. And then mm. when uh, Santos, Juan Manuel Santos came to power, there was a new negotiation process, but this time not with the paramilitaries, but with the guerrillas, and especially with the FARC, because in Colombia there are several guerrillas. The FARC was one of the very long-term guerrillas. It was founded in 1964, and it had a very peasant origin. And one of the struggles, the core st- struggle of the FARC was land reform. Colombia is one of the countries where the land reform has given way to cycles of violence, Mm. you know. Each time a president, a liberal reformist president, tried to do land reform, we had a counter-reform from the right. And so um, the Santos government started negotiations. And this time it was not demobilization, but negotiation. It was between... The state mm. and the guerrilla who had an agenda, political agenda. Of course, that guerrilla right. had gone also into into the resources uh, given by the narco traffic uh, trade, but it had an agenda, a political agenda, and so we had negotiations. Mm. And then, in those negotiations, again, memory, memory, what happened? Who did? to whom, what, and why, was at the center of the disputes. And we had, at that time, uh, uh, two two paradigms that explained completely in different ways what had happened in Colombia. Of course, it showed how conflict was not only played out in the armed field, but also in the symbolic field, in the discursive field. And so um, at that time started a very polarized way of looking at the past. On one side, you had those Mm. who said, we did not have an armed conflict. This was a democracy, a perfect democracy. Well, they don't say perfect, but (laughs) they imply it. (laughs) And so uh, the guerrillas are really terrorists. So we should not negotiate with terrorists. Um, They should go to prison. They don't. Their voice should not count. On the other side, mm-hmm. you had other uh, elites and other intellectuals and other forces, social forces, who said, "We did have an armed conflict because democracy in Colombia is full of depths, uh, and particularly depths around social social reforms." Uh, Colombia oh, yeah. is a very Uh, um, In in inequitable society, and certain Mm level reforms that were done in other countries in the 30s, not only land reforms, but social reforms, were postponed many times in Colombia. So we had those two paradigms, discursive paradigms, Mm -hmm. to explain why we had gone through such a long conflict. The law, the second law, the law uh, put up in place during the Santos government called the Law of Victims and Land Restitution, put up a legal framework, a a normative and legal framework, where you had one institution, the Centro Nacional de Memoria Histórica, that had the function, the role of preserving preserving memory, preserving archives, oral um, painting, poetry um, from the people who had lived through the conflict and survived the conflict. Uh, So preserving the archives and also um, serving as a platform for different voices to really have a deep dialogue of where did we come from and where did we want to go to. And in that institution, Mm -hmm. apart from the archival direction or I don't know how to say dimension of the center, Mm -hmm. there was a museum, the National Museum, Memory Museum, that is being built and that is one of the surviving and long-term institutions that should remain for the next generations.
1: Right. And I think there's there's kind of two really interesting elements of this, both of which are absolutely important and both of which you've worked on very closely. One is is the creation of the memory, the listening to people, the creating the archives. Um and the second is bringing them back uh-huh. to people. Not just so that they sit passively. Um and I notice you've you've worked on creating tools mm-hmm. for teachers. So, really, bringing it to the next generation. So, what's that process been like?
2: Well, you see, I think that memory. When we talk about memory, memory has a significance because it always speaks to the present. Um, mm. And so, why do do we want the past to speak to the present? And and the answer has to do with learning. You no, know, with what do we learn from past atrocities? of course we haven't done a very good job as humanity no <laughs> because after mm-hmm. the holocaust mm-hmm. and the second world war the never again was one of the main um uh, you know um, learning learning uh, yeah, phrases yeah. that kept on coming, but of course we know that after the Holocaust, other huge atrocities happened. But the thing is that memory, Absolutely. in order to be to to be a learning process, needs human agency to make it speak to the present uh, and to make it speak mm-hmm. in a meaningful way, in a reflexive. I don't know if you say re- thoughtful thoughtful way to the present, you need to to think why certain atrocities happened instead of justifying them because it was a historical necessity. Um, Let me give you examples about the Second World War again. Of course, we know that Nazism needed to be uh, uh, stamped down. By the Allies. And mm. of course, we know that the Allies were defending uh, the ethical cause of democracy. I mean, there's no doubt. But the Allies also used certain repertories like bombing cities, no? Dresden, or, well, mm. or bombing Hiroshima, no? Yeah. <laughs> and mm. so when you go back, if you go back only to de- to say these are the heroes and these are the villains, villains, and the heroes are pure heroes, they are not human beings, they are not complex, they don't make mistakes. You are not learning anything. <laughs> you are recycling in a way, in a different way. You are recycling the matrix of the discourses that give way to war. Let's think of Ukraine, No, the Ukraine war. The discourses that justify on the side of Putin the war are historical discourses, are memory discourses. And it's like, mm. oh, my God, you know, the Soviet Union fell in 89 and it was supposed to give yeah. way to a critical, thoughtful thinking about why why did it fall down why do certain mm. nations around russia uh, have this kind of angst you know, around the soviet mm-hmm. union you know what was the 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 the, the you know <laughs> critical thinking is not about saying oh there were heroes and villains it's more about understanding the suffering of people even in situations where they were not supposed to be the suffering party no. and and on the Ukraine side you could go back also into the history of Ukraine and find also critical points of history where the decisions made by the elites were the wrong decisions I mean they made mistakes also beneath war, there's a discourse, a symbolic justification for war. And that's what we should think about when we say that memory should be uh, like a learning process. If we do not want war to Mm. come back or in Colombia, if we want to stop the cycles of violence that we've been through.
1: And it's an amazing process to me. Because it's it's one of few examples I've seen historically where memory is being created in an incredibly conscious way. It was part of the peace deal that memory was was formed, was curated and sort of mm-hmm. moulded. So how has the country fought to hold on to these nuances that you're talking about to, to get rid of hero versus villain? How's that been I addressed?
2: Think, I, I don't think that all Colombians would agree with me. <laughs> I think that, for instance, there are sectors... That still hold to the idea that there were heroes and villains, either from the left or the right. Mm. I mean, we have to see is that the negotiations in Colombia came up at a time where you had an international court and trans- transitional justice processes in different parts of the world. And the transitional justice mm. processes are not just Technical processes. There, there's, let's say there's a, a field of thought around transitional justice that has become very uh, meaningful and deep. I mean, it's not just like mm-hmm. you bring protocols to a country. It's, it's more about ethically thinking about how you're going to transition from great dramas tragedies in history to a better world, let's say that. And so Colombia, Mm. even if the elites of Colombia, the government elites did not want memory to be part of the deal, we were part of the pacts that have been signed around Uh transitional justice, the the international court, the Rome Statute, and all those international uh, tools ask, demand memory to be at the center of the processes. So we were not alone. This has been a complex play between local, national and international actors playing in a field that is very, very polarized in Colombia. Not everyone believes that in my discourse, but I believe in that discourse because Mm. I think that in order to not repeat things you really have to find the, the the causal links, not to repeat the same logic. Mm. Um, and I think that right. one thing that is so interesting about Colombia is that even amongst, amidst, sorry, amidst the war, there were actors already thinking about memory and archives and doing memory and archival work around human rights even from the 80s, you know, mm. even before the International court, wow. I mean, they were really thinking about, you know, if there's so much impunity in Colombia through the justice apparatus, mm. we need other forms of justice, social justice. And social justice works through memory and archival, um, archival work. And so when, when the institutions came into life, in in the 21st century society was not even if we were at war society was not silent I mean there were sectors speaking up and saying you know Mm. you killed my Mm. father or uh, you know uh, really honoring their own victims and their own disappeared and saying we need to know what happened we we the way to counteract the impunity is by speaking up. And they were speaking up.
1: Right, because there's there's a bit of a kind of overused cliche about Colombia, which references Marquez's uh, amnesia ah. chapter in 100 Years of Solitude. And people say, oh, Colombia is an amnesiac country. We never learn. No,
2: I think García Márquez's 100 Years of Solitude is a very potent metaphor of the cycles mm. of violence that we've been through until until nice. the 80s. <laughs> I think yeah. in the 80s there was a, a cultural turn in Colombia where um, in fact people, some people, not all people, some people decided that the voice, the archive, and the memory was important for the next generation. Before the armed conflict, the modern armed conflict of the 60s, we had been through La Violencia, which are the 40s and Mm. 50s and 60s, which was a terrible time for Colombia, La Violencia. I mean, we had hundreds of dead people. We had rituals of terror in the fields. And Mm. uh, García Márquez wrote his book in the 60s, and it was true that Even if artists were uh, pointing out the dramatic, traumatic conditions we had been through, through painting, literature, and even there was a report by intellectuals, it it did not circulate. It it did not become the agenda, the center agenda of what we were speaking about in the 60s and 70s. We turned the page too
1: fast. Right. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So to jump forward to now, you know, we've had a change, we've had a change Mm -hmm. in government. Do you see any shift in in the culture around memory and history making under Petro as as opposed to Duque or Santos?
2: Well, uh, first of all, yes, for us, it's a huge change. I don't think that many people understand that in the context of Colombia, the coming to power of Petro is really a small revolution, (laughs) a soft revolution, Mm -hmm. let's say, because during the 20th century, in most Latin American countries, either we had uh, very strong reformist forces, um, even populist forces were reformist in their countries, Uh, Perón and, I mean, all the um, populist forces in the 30s and 40s, but in Colombia, we did mm. not. I mean, uh, in the 30s, we had López Pumarejo, who was a liberal president, who tried to do mm. reforms. And then we had La Violencia. That, and La Violencia, what right. what La, La Violencia did was put a break on all the reforms and the social processes that were going on. Um, and so... Right. Uh, in the 60s, we had a national front that during 16 de- years decided who, uh, that only liberal or conservative presidents could, you know, feed for the presidency. And so the left was marginalized. It, it did not disappear. It wasn't illegal, but it was marginalized at a point where we had a huge student movement, and Cuba, the, the Cuban Revolution, was going on. And other, other mm-hmm. parts of the world were also seeing revolutions. And so the National Front was a very complex moment in the history of Colombia because people were asking in the streets for reforms. The students, uh, the peasants, mm-hmm. there was a huge... Peasant movement in the sixties in Colombia, and um, indigenous people also were forming their own organizations, and they were speaking about their own culture, and they were also bringing into the table very complex agendas about um, com- community and collective differences with with the state. But those, all those voices. Uh, were were not incorporated in the political arena because right. for right. instance because of the of the conflict armed conflict and because it was a polarized mm. conflict a polar, a polarized society so mm. um mm. Uh, we did not have a left president during those years, and then in the 80s, it was very dramatic because we lost a generation of young, young um, politicians, either from the liberal, left liberal side of the spectrum or from the left. Again, we had, you know, a, 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 a whole generation that died. Um, in the 90s mm. election, I think we had four candidates who were killed. And so you have to to think that, for instance, for Colombia to have for the first time in history, uh, a left mm. president is a huge, a huge, um,
1: a huge transformation. And his approach to memory making and history is
2: different. Because, Does it look different? I said before, different. in the matrix, in the two paradigms, uh, the one saying that we did not have an armed conflict, we only had terrorists, and the other saying no, we did have an armed conflict. Of course, Petro is within that second paradigm. We did have. He came. Mm. He came from the M nineteen, a guerrilla that was formed in the seventies, and uh, mm. that. Uh, signed a peace treaty with the state in the 90s and was part of the Mm. Constitutional Assembly in the 90s that formed the constitutional chart that we have now.
1: Right. Um, And do you think that, that total peace, that this new negotiation for new either peace deals or submissions to justice, Will there be new history and memory-making processes around these New Deals, and, and how will they differ from from the ones with the FARC?
2: I do think, I mean, you know, memory is an ongoing process, a, a very human ongoing process, either <laughs> with government or without government. I mean, humans, right. in order to think about themselves and say who they are, um, Produce memories. You know? So um, at the moment, of course, we're producing memories and uh, the memory battles continue because there are certain institutions in the transitional justice agreement between Santos and FARC that are in place. Uh, we had a truth commission mm-hmm. that gave its reports last year and uh, yeah. we have the Justicia Especial para la Paz, the the judiciary of the peace process where there is a lot of mm. memory and truth building going on. And, and so right. it goes on and on, not just because Petro came into power, but because there are many things happening at the same time. Yes, there is Petro. And Petro, of course, um, wants memory to be part of its central agenda, but apart from Petro in the HEP, uh, in the judiciary, the peace judiciary, uh, for instance, the FARC, the ex FARC commandantes thoughtfully reflecting on certain things they did during the war, like for, for instance, kidnapping, that they say now, mm. now retrospectively, Within this justice that is dialogical and with the victims facing them, they say it should never have happened. We are really embarrassed and we think that kidnapping is not a revolutionary act and that we really lost mm-hmm. it. I mean, we, we, we were, in Segecidos, they say, we were blind. We were blinded mm-hmm. by the war. So that's amazing, and on the side of the military, the military are facing the victims of what we call in Colombia falsos positivos, which is killing people, killing people for benefits given by the military to the soldiers and to the um, to those involved in 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 the war. Because the falsos positivos was based on body counting, which is one of the uh, indicators of war used by different armies, which Mm. is really a very bad idea. You know, body counting Mm -hmm. should not Mm -hmm. be part of what tells a government if it's doing Things right in the, in the field of war, but anyway, um, absolutely, those military are also facing the victims and recognizing that they did something absolutely immoral, and some of them cry, cry, facing the camera and facing the victims. So we are going through a learning process. My concern mm. is that I don't know how many people in Colombia. Are really listening to what is happening in the HEP, in the uh, judiciary Mm. for peace in Colombia, because it is really transformative. But I don't know if it's really being, you know, if it's really sinking down into the Colombian, say, into the Colombian view of what we've been through.
1: That's such an interesting post element as well as the creation of that memory is bringing it back Mm -hmm. to people and for that you need any number of mechanisms including a a media who is interested in telling those stories and the media should be committed to
2: being really a mediation between the past and how we think about the past
1: no i agree and and the work to bring the, the Truth Commission report into schools, I think, is a is another really interesting element and a slightly controversial one, given that the Democratic Center, the Centro Democrático, said that there were things in that report that simply were not true. I mean, there's still a lot of division around these memories.
2: Yeah, there's always a battle around memory, as I said before, and the Centro Democrático uh, contends that the reports are not truthful. Um. Mm. But I think that I, I I believe that you can approach truth uh, through very rigorous work in different archives, mm. oral I mean, you know, testimonies, documents and I think that between what the the, Centro, the report of the Centro Democrático and the reports of the Truth Commission, any historian that approaches the two reports can see that the reports of the Truth Commission did the Contrastación de Fuentes, the contrasting mm. different points of view and bringing different archives into the reconstruction of the past, while I think the Centro Democrática did a very historically poor job. I mean, it, 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 mm. it's really poor in terms of archival work and contrasting different points of view.
1: Yeah, that, that methodology question mm-hmm. is such a big one. And, you know, the Truth Commission report has been very broadly celebrated for its rigor and, and the sheer scale of it. Um, it's really interesting talking about the HEP and, you know, people admitting that they mm-hmm. did wrong because you've you've written really interestingly about Colombia having broken moral mm-hmm. boundaries during the war and how to set those back into place.
2: Yes. Um, it's a very sad story, really, because I think that we had a very long armed conflict and I think the fact that it's been so long going on part plays out Mm. against Colombians, against all the actors involved because each actor pushes the boundaries about what it imagines possible and moral, permissible. Do you say permissible? Mm. And so the boundaries are pushed and pushed. So that if you look, for instance, at the '80s in Colombia, um, paramilitaries started committing um, massacres. You know, twenty people mm-hmm. in a fandango. Fandango is uh, a party. You know, a peasant party where families go, yeah. grandchildren. Grandparents are uh, together dancing and eating and having fun together and they massacred um, like 18 people in that fandango. I mean what does it tell you <laughs> I mean about a country when armed people kill in a fandango in a party 18 people you know for for political yeah. reasons no. What, what mm, is there mm. political about, you know, using that report, reper, repertory of violence? So that's one breach of morality. And what is really toxic about those things, about those events, is that not only the families of the, sur- the surviving members of the families are traumatized, you know, what is life? what is worth, What what is life's worth. But uh, but also those who committed those atrocities also begin what some have called um, um, a cognitive process of justifying the unjustifiable. You know, once you do it once, Fascinating, yeah. then the second time you think mm. it's normal. So you begin transitioning into normalizing acts that are not even by human rights standard or um, la la el DIH el derecho internacional humanitario not even by mm. uh, international humanitarian law are acceptable but not only that, right, not yeah. only those involved in the act are being degraded by the act itself, but those who know about the act through the media, through television, because those who mm. look at the act also know that the the limits of what one human being can do to another human being are being breached and are being you know, made into something that doesn't matter. So I think that breaching those those limits has terrible consequences for everyone, for the families. Mm -hmm. I mean, the victim's family, for those who committed the massacre, but also for those who look at the massacre, who know about the massacre, then... Other atrocious acts can be committed, like you know, um, right sexual violence, you know, group violence mm. against mm. women, against very young children, and, and or or what I've heard in in the Colombian conflict, tortures, you know, undefinable. I mean, unimaginable tortures. Um. Mm. So you live in a country where toxic news are part of the news every day. And right, uh, yeah. transitioning to peace means that you, you have to disintoxicate society, that you have to bring again, right. you know, the limits between what is permissible between human beings and what is not permissible. What you right. can do to another human being, even within an armed conflict, you know.
1: Mm. Right.
2: It's not yeah. normal. So that It's not normal to massacre people, <laughs> not even in, a, in, a, in an armed
1: conflict. Yeah, yeah. And then the, you know, we've talked about Colombia being a polarized society. And there was another, you know, international study that came out last week saying Colombia is still one of the most oh. polarized countries in the world. I'm wondering how, how you think that has changed and shifted over the last six years since the peace deal. Do you think society is weaving itself back together or is it cementing well, into, it, you know, these two in, camps? In
2: the book I'm presenting at the Hay Festival, there's a chapter on, on mm-hmm. the dynamics of memory in Colombia. And I say the polarisation right. became... became uh, polarisation is created. I mean, it's not something that, oh, happens, not it's created. It's constructed right. by actors, and mm. it has to do with how the discourses uh, being put in, in the public sphere, and how the actors mm. see each other, and and how they they speak about each other. So um, I think a right. turning point was when uh, the there was the approval of the. Lay the victims y Restitución de Tierras, the, the Law on Victims and Land Restitution in 2011. At that point, mm. you had in Congress two sides, you know, one saying, oh, wow, this law is perfect. I mean, you know. It, it, the law was based on the fact that we were in an armed conflict and there were certain rights and the rights of victims should be at the center of the process. And the other side said, no way, there's no armed conflict. We had terrorists. Those terrorists should never benefit for, from a microphone, from having you know, the, the possibility of speaking why they, re- they rebelled. And um, there was another point that was crucial between those sides, those two sides, was that the Centro Democrático said that the militaries were victims, only victims, only victims. They did not play Mm. any part in victimizing other Colombians. Um, While the other side, uh, say, those who were around the law, of victims and land restitution said, of course the state is part of the problem. It's not only, you know, an actor. It's one Mm. actor that has played out in the field of politics and has made terrible mistakes, and we should talk about those mistakes so that they do not repeat in the future. And so from that point on, we had polarization, and then came the plebiscite. In 2016. Right. And Santos course, yeah. lost the plebiscite by very few votes, very few votes. And many, mm, things, many, many things happened that I could explain why <laughs> he lost. Uh, mm. But in fact, what the plebiscite showed, and the nearly 50 50, you know, for the yes or no of the plebiscite showed, was uh, showed was that we had a split up society those who think that the negotiations were uh, very badly conducted that too many benefits mm. were given to the guerrillas that the heroes that are right. the military for them should never 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 uh, go to court or go to to the head the judiciary the peace judiciary and on the other side, there were those who said, you know, we're fed up with arms and we think that this society needs a better democratic culture to uh, process the conflicts we have. And so we should speak, negotiate and transition to peace through justice, but a different justice.
1: And you've been working on these issues for a very long time, and across a number of disciplines, and I'm wondering if there's if there's anything that's really surprised you in your work.
2: Oh no, many things. You know, I, I've been learning. Mm. This has been like um, an experience with other people who have been my colleagues, with the victims themselves that have also mm. un saber a knowledge to share. Um, mm. And I think that, of course, there are many things that that have been for me astonishing. I, I, of course, I knew I lived in a country where there was an armed conflict, but I didn't know mm. how far we had gone into, you know, the 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 evil condition of human beings. I didn't know. I mean, right. I, I hadn't heard from the victims themselves. Um, for instance, the tortures inflicted and and the sexual violence going on in in in, in mm-hmm. the war in Colombia, and that not only shocked me, it really traumatized me for a while. You know, i i I, I course, for a while yeah. I couldn't even think because it was too atrocious to even be. Reflected upon, you know, and you take on the, mm. the those testimonies, and 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 for a certain time, you cannot find your own voice, you cannot speak. I used to cry all the time mm. because it was too atrocious to absorb. Um, so I've been learning through the victims' voices, through colleagues, through the help of friends. Also, this has been a very complex process of. of Mm. shock surprise you know going through traumatic events traumatic memories recomposing yourself and then keep on the fight for 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 a memory that is really helpful for Colombia to not repeat what it it has been living through all these years
1: absolutely now I know I know I could talk to you all day, Mariama, but I also know you're getting on a flight, I think, to Cartagena, to the Yes, the hay?
2: yes. I'm going I'm to the hay. I'm very excited. Um, I love, I love literature. It's, oh, it's a wonderful passion. event.
1: So it's I'm an amazing really event. Absolutely. Instead of quizzing you all day, I will be getting hold yeah. of the book.
2: We'll be mm. presenting the book with a um, colleague who also is an anthropologist and who has done Patricia Patricia Nieto. Hey does have a
1: streamer and I will encourage all of our <laughs> listeners to head to there because a lot of the Hey talks will be on that streamer after the festival okay. this weekend. Um, but for now, this has been completely fascinating. So thank you so thank much, you, Maria. Emily, Emma, and let's talk and soon. Have a good day. Ciao. And a special thank you to the Hey Festival for linking us up with this interview. If you don't already know, the Hey Festival run festivals of ideas all over Latin America, including three in Colombia every January. Check out the Hey Player and their digital attendance options. There's a lot of really great stuff on there. That's all from me for this time, but I'll be back next week with your news. Have a great one.
0: The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website. That's bnbcolumbia.com. And they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again.